0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program, or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org. Thanks, comrades. So the ISO's political tradition is socialism from below. That tradition was founded by Marx and Engels, and was later developed by the classical Marxists, Lenin, Bukharin, Trotsky, Gramsci. Luxembourg, many, many others, and many more in the 20th century. And it has always opposed every imperialism, and it has always stood in solidarity with struggles for national liberation and workers' revolutions throughout the world. The two traditions of socialism from above, social democracy and Stalinism, grew out of that tradition and betrayed it. Social democracy from World War I on, supported their own government, their own imperialist government, in their subjugation of oppressed nations and in their counter-revolutions against workers' uprisings in, in their spheres of influence and colonies. They became social patriots, not social democrats, but social patriots. They had allegiance to their own state and their own ruling class instead of challenging it. The other tradition of socialism from below, from above, is Stalinism, which was the ruling ideology of the Russian state capitalist uh, 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 system and its satellites, its various uh, 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 states that were in its sphere of uh, of influence, and the Stalin's. Little communist parties throughout the world, um, sometimes much bigger and not so little, um, became apologists for Russian state capitalism, Russia's exploitation and oppression of its own population, and its imperial interventions in other parts uh, uh, of the world. So they supported the Russian camp. They became campists rather than internationalists. They supported one side of the Cold War division. Neither of these two traditions offers us a guide for the developing new socialist movement in the United States. We have to revive, rebuild, and develop the tradition of genuine anti-imperialism and internationalism developed by the classical Marxist. Nowhere has this become more clear and urgent a task than on the question of Syria. Really, the question of Syria and the Syrian revolution was a test for the international left. And it should have been an easy test where you knew which side you came down on. The choice was very simple. Are you on the side of a genocidal dictator? Or are you on the side of a genuine mass popular uprising for democracy, equality, and the liberation of an oppressed people? Much of the campus left in the name of anti-imperialism, backed Assad's state and his counter-revolution against this popular uprising. Even worse, they backed Russian and Iranian intervention, regional and international imperial intervention, into Syria in support of Assad's counter-revolution. Much of the anti-war movement only opposed U.S. intervention in Syria and remained silent, agnostic, on the question of Russian imperial intervention and the Iranian regional intervention into Syria. In so doing, they betrayed opposition to imperialism and solidarity with a popular revolution. Now, obviously the Syrian revolution is no pure revolution. It turned into a civil war and imperialist and regional powers intervened in that process. But as Lenin said about the Easter uprising in Ireland, there is no such thing as a pure revolution. If you expect a pure revolution where one side is led all by Marxists and the other side is led only by reactionaries, you'll never live to see one. It's a simple fact. All revolutions are complex, dirty processes where people try and rise up and find their way to fight for a new society. of anti-imperialists and internationalists is to understand this in its full complexity and take a principled position on the question. So what happened in Syria? I can only give a sketch, uh, an outline of the events because there are other talks that will address the the, the full, a full, a full picture of the Syrian revolution in great detail. The Syrian revolution was part of the Arab Spring uprisings back in 2011 the region is it remains in a protracted revolutionary crisis that's that crisis is rooted in the specific conditions of of the middle east and its position in the world system the region is divided into various dictatorships that oversee a rentier capitalist economy based on oil and other forms of, of rent and this has led it to be in a block stage of development. It's unable to develop in in the way that other sections of the world system have developed. These regimes, alongside Israel, have also imposed neoliberalism uh, on all the societies in the region. Privatizing corporations, destroying the welfare states, deregulating the economies, and opening them up to international investment. As a result, the lower middle class, the working class, and the peasantry throughout the region have suffered horrific declines in their standard of living. And on top of that, They're all fed up with the absence of democracy, the absence of basic social rights, the absence of the ability to organize, peacefully assemble, and, and fight for a better future. So in 2011, first in Tunisia, then in Egypt, and then throughout the region, the laboring classes rose up in a regional revolt for equality, democracy, and liberation. The Syrian Revolution was part of that process. It faced a brutal neoliberal capitalist dictatorship overseen by Bashar al-Assad that ruled through a massive security state, private, privatized uh, 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 gangs of thugs that ruled through the uh, through massive divide and conquer, uh, use of sectarian divisions, and it ruled by the oppression of uh, the Kurdish minority. So it maintained rule through a brutal structure of oppression of all the, the country's population. So the people began to rise up, inspired by the Tunisian and Egyptian revolts, just like people did throughout the Middle East and North Africa. In Syria it begins in Daraa and quickly spreads through the rural towns and especially the urban. The, suburbs, the urban suburbs uh, concentrated with working class people who, have, who fled um, conditions of immiseration in the countryside. At its best moments, the Syrian revolution united people across sectarian divisions and across the ethnic division between Arabs and Kurds. Um, and it was largely based among the middle classes and laboring classes. Assad responded to this mass popular uprising, which was hundreds of thousands of people pouring into the streets, chanting for democracy, struggling for a new kind of society. Assad responded to this with the utmost brutality. He gunned down peaceful protesters, jailed activists, tortured the activists in concentration-like camp conditions in the jails of Syria, and organized systematic campaigns of rape against women who were participating in the revolutionary uprising. The slogan literally of the henchmen of the Assad regime was Assad or we'll burn your country. That was the threat against this popular uprising. And Assad followed through on that promise. His regime and its Russian and Iranian backers are responsible for 94% of those who've been killed in the counter-revolution against this popular uprising. And a half a million people have been killed. His reign of terror has displaced half the country's population and driven 5 million people out of the, the country. Mainly into the region, but many of them to uh, desperate flights into, into Europe where they meet the EU and its gendarmes that trap people and prevent them from fi- finding a uh, finding, uh, way to safety. Um, he also tried to divide and conquer the revolt uh, along sectarian and ethnic lines. He released Islamic fundamentalist jihadists from his jails in the hope that he they would target the Alawite, Christian and other religious minorities so that then Assad could posture as the defender of those religious minorities and thereby bind them to the the regime. So a classic sectarian divide and conquer strategy. He also granted control uh, of of the Kurdish territories in Syria to the Kurdish PYD, which is the sister organization of Turkey's PKK, which did not extend solidarity to the Syrian revolution. So he attempted to divide it between Arabs and Kurds and prevent what would have been the most devastating unity, which would have been the combination of the Kurdish revolt with the Syrian revolutionary process. But that was not enough to quell the revolution. Re- uh, re- defecting soldiers and revolutionaries formed the Free Syrian Army, which was never actually an army but a collection of heterogeneous militias that were very locally based, mainly to defend themselves against an onslaught of bombs, helicopter bombs, uh, barrel bombs, and then Russian air attacks uh, that, that would follow. The FSA militias liberated territories and began to establish local democracies and regional councils as people in those liberated areas tried the process in very difficult conditions to try and remake their society. Faced with the threat Of regional revolution, of of a genuine revolution um, that was developing in Syria, imperial and regional powers all intervened on various sides, all of them with counter revolutionary aims, none of them in support of the Syrian revolutionary process. Russia and Iran and its proxy Hezbollah intervened on the side of Assad, really saving his regime. He would have fallen without the intervention of Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah. Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar backed various Islamic fundamentalist forces, which all played a reactionary and sectarian role within the the revolution itself. The US, for its part, despite what I'll talk about uh, from the so-called anti-imperialist left, never pursued regime change in Syria. It hoped to back a section uh, of the Free Syrian Army and use it to pressure the regime into a negotiation in which Assad would go but the structure of the state would be preserved because their biggest fear out of the lesson of Iraq was that if the state fell there would be chaos so they wanted assadism without assad that was never going to happen for reasons that i don't have time to go into because assad and his state are almost inextricably bound one one to the one to the other And after the rise of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, the US abandoned any pretensions really to regime change to focus monomaniacally on a non-stop bombing campaign against ISIS in Syria and actually deprioritized any support for the Free Syrian Army forces that they had been backing because they saw ISIS as the main threat. So most of their bombing all of their bombing, really, has been targeting ISIS and not Assad. The U.S. has not engaged in any kind of bombing campaign except in response to his various chemical weapon attacks, and those lead, those attacks have been largely symbolic. As a result, Assad, Russia, and Iran have been largely able to defeat the revolution, but in the process, they have destroyed much of the country. As you can see if you watch the documentaries that show you bombed-out cities, incinerated air- areas um, that that Assad, Russia, and Iran have wrought in the country. The question is, why did so many on the left and in the anti-war movement back Assad, Russia, and Iran? Why did others restrict their opposition only to U.S. intervention and only to U.S. intervention when there were attacks? these symbolic attacks, but didn't really organize and protest the massive bombing campaign that the US did against ISIS, which committed massive atrocities in Raqqa and and, and other places. Um, That's that's the key question that we have to come to terms with. And the thing we have to say is, this is not an isolated phenomenon. We're talking about many sections of the left, many sections of the liberal anti-war activists. So of course, the Stalinist type left, the party for socialism and liberation, or the Communist Party, or various other tiny, tiny groups um, supported supported Assad and Russia because of their deep campism. But you've also had prominent journalists like uh, Patrick Coburn, uh, Robert Fisk, Seymour Hersh, Max Blumenthal, all who basically recycled regime propaganda uh, to to justify uh, uh, what what the regime was doing in the mode of anti-imperialism. So they also participated in it. And then you had the anti-war formations like um, UNAC in the United States and Stop the War in Britain, who restricted their opposition only to the U.S. and not never raised Russian, uh, a Russian intervention or Iranian intervention. And this has even affected um, sections of the new developing socialist movement. So if people read R.L. Stevens' article that he laid out um, what he thinks DSA's position should be on on the Syrian revolution and American imperialism, he. He basically accepts full, uh, the full program that the U.S. was about regime change in Syria and that, the, that anti-war activists and socialists should only be opposing the U.S. Uh, government intervention and basically remain agnostic on the question of the Syrian revolution, which in his article he essentially erases and barely uh, appears in his article. So this is a real question that we're going to have to wrestle with on, on the left. Now I think the deep roots uh, of this problem on the hard left lie in the Stalinist left's approach to the Cold War. They supported, as I said, the Russian camp um, in the Cold War. They were campus. And they even confused these one-party state capitalist dictatorships with socialism itself, which is a process of the degeneration of socialist I- ideas, because socialism is about workers' democracy, not one-party dictator uh, w- dictatorships. They, in the process, they betrayed working class internationalism and sided with those states and their ruling classes against their their people. And they backed counter-revolutionary interventions by the Russian Russian state like the crushing of the Hungarian uprising in 1956 and the Prague Spring in 1968. In the process they abandoned the Marxist theory of imperialism and genuine anti-imperialist practice. They viewed the world as divided between Western imperialism and so-called anti-imperialist states and they extended solidarity to those states no matter how brutal how oppressive undemocratic uh, uh, in all its different forms those states those states were. This generated the bankrupt idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend which has a widespread adherence uh, outside the campus left and it led them to dress up their so-called friends in sheep's clothing when they were actually wolves, many of these regimes. They excused Stalin's and Mao's crimes and they did the same thing for their third world imitators like Mugabe in Zimbabwe or the Kim regime in North Korea. Whole generations of the left through the 1960s were trained in this campism. In the case of Syria, it led them to cover up the nature of the Assad regime itself. They called it anti-imperialist, um, and an opponent, an ax, part of the axis of resistance to US imperialism, which is absolutely not the case. The, the regime in, in Syria supported the Gulf War um, and has uh, co- and collaborated with the Bush administration in the project of extraordinary rendition. That is US captured uh, 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 um, jihadists and all their people, they, they caught up in their dragnet, their international dragnet, were tortured in Syrian jails and information Transferred from Syrian jails to the Bush administration, um, and far from uh, being an opponent or in an antagonistic relationship with Obama uh, in in the White House, Obama and Clinton, his Secretary of State at the time, actually embraced Assad as a neoliberal reformer. And you can see Hillary Clinton saying this about Assad in many many uh, instances. They uh, their, their claim. They also claim that um, uh, the Assad regime was an a uh, of the state of Israel and the support of the Palestinian movement. Actually, the regime has preserved peace on the Golan Heights with Israel and has repeatedly massacred Palestinians, including during the Assyrian revolution itself. Some even claimed that it's socialist, but it never was. It was state capitalist in one phase of its economic policy and now is a crony neoliberal privatized uh, uh, capitalist economy in which Bashar al-Assad basically sold off much of the state-owned companies to his family and friends so that most of his family and friends have gotten enriched in a crony capitalist way uh, through the process of privatization. Others assert that the regime is a secular alternative to Islamic fundamentalism. That's another absurd claim. It has a sectarian base, the regime does, in the Alawite minority and it has used sectarian to divide and conquer the, the, the Syrian uh, pop- population. These myths and myths in the campus methodology explain how whole sections of the left fell into selective solidarity in response to the Arab Spring. They stood in solidarity with revolts in Egypt and in other states inside the U.S. camp, but outside the U.S. camp, they stood with the regimes against the revolutions. Indeed, they dismissed those revolutions, like the Syrian revolution, as ones that have been orchestrated by the United States. That the US stood behind those revolutions, and they called them color revolutions, like they called the revolutions in Eastern Europe color color revolutions. Um, that's what they said uh, about Libya, and that's what they said about Syria. Not only is this illogical, this selective solidarity, it is also profoundly orientalist in its heart because it basically dismisses the capacity of oppressed and exploited Arab peoples to rise up and fight for their own liberation and their own interest, and it basically dismisses them as puppets of American imperialism, which is elitist and orientalist at its its very heart. Another example of this selective solidarity, which I think is particularly disturbing, is the anarchist support of the Kurdish liberation struggle, but refusal to extend that to the Syrian revolutionary uh, process. But the truth is, without the Syrian revolution, there would have been no space for the Kurdish PYD to ever uh, establish Rojava. So that really, these things have to be seen as part of a process and both both supported as a part of struggle for for liberation campism has also impacted whole swaths of the broader broader left Um, but there was another and particularly related set of ideas that has shaped the wide the wider anti-war and liberal liberal forces that is the view that the u.s is the only imperialist power in in the world right now liberal and anti-war organizations learned this during the Iraq war really when the US was at the apogee the height of its imperial power in, in the world system and they grew to see that the U.S. was behind everything; it was the puppet master because that somewhat reflected the position of the U.S. in the in the world um, uh, world system. But that no longer fits reality. So, like generals who are all always accused of fighting the last war, not the actual war that they're involved in, the anti-war movement is saying that there's a war going on that's not going on and opposing that while not opposing the actual war and building solidarity with the revolution. In reality, the U.S. is not a global puppet master. It is one of many imperialist powers. It is, of course, the most powerful, predatory um, power in in, in the world. It dominates the economy, the military. It has the biggest military in the world and is the most geopolitically powerful state in the world system. That's why we oppose American imperialism, full stop, unapologetically, across the board. It is not a force for good. It's a force for predation and exploitation and oppression. But it faces real rivals, especially China, but also Russia and various regional powers like Iran. Its imperial powers, imperial rivals, are lesser powers, but they are not lesser evils. They may be lesser powers, but they're not lesser evils. Just look at China and what it does in Tibet, or to its Uyghur minority within its borders, or look at what it's doing in the South China Sea, aggressively projecting its military domination of the South China Seas against the United States. Look at its predatory loans in Africa, all over Africa right now, or look at what it just did in Sri Lanka, where it manipulated the debt of that country to seize control of a port that it was building in in Sri, Sri Lanka. It now has a treaty port, and if you think of the history of China, it's ironic. It has a treaty port in Sri Lanka. Russia is no better. Putin oversees a police state, rules through brute force in Chechnya, and has imposed its will in an attempt to claw back territory that U.S. won after the Cold War in Ukraine, Georgia, and other, and other places. And most dramatically, in Syria, it's engaged in an all-out blitzkrieg in dropping bombs and bombs and bombs on the Syrian, uh, Syrian revolutionary forces. Moreover, the US is in relative decline after its defeat in Iraq and Afghanistan and after the Great Recession. It's still the most powerful state, but it's in relative decline and faces these rivals. Because of these setbacks, Bush and the Obama administration abandoned regime change in the Middle East. That's why Obama cut a deal with Iran over its nuclear accord because what was the the US up to? They wanted to balance between Iran and the other regional powers, Saudi Arabia, not out of some pacifistic generosity because they wanted to extract themselves from the Middle East in terms of engaging in ground wars and taking responsibility for imposing its will on these societies so that it could redirect its economic might, its military might, and its geopolitical might against China in Asia. That was Obama's pivot to Asia. And it also didn't mean that the Obama administration was any less predatory. It just didn't want to use troops on the ground and wanted to do subcontracting to special forces um, to engage in the so-called war on terror as well as launch the massive drone war. So this wasn't a pacifistic position on the part of the Obama administration but a part of a reorientation of American imperialism to confront China by de- decreasing its commitment to, to boots on the ground in the Middle East Obama hoped to, to restore the position of American imperialism so as a result the the last thing that Obama wanted in and had in mind was a program of regime change. The US has actually retreated from that in the Middle East. Even after the Arab Spring developed, they actually preferred the existing regimes in their region. And so their policy was actually one of orderly transition. At first, they wanted to preserve the regimes, including supporting Mubarak almost to the very end. And only when forced did they develop a strategy of an orderly transition, which is essentially sacrificing the dictator to save the state because they wanted the states to stay in place. That was the lesson they learned in, in, in Iraq. In Syria, the US, as I've argued, never pursued a regime change policy. At best they wanted Assadism without Assad, but when push came to shove, they opted not to conduct any significant airstrikes against the regime. For instance, Obama cut a deal Th- with Russia in 2013, despite saying that with the chemical attacks that Assad did, that he had crossed a red line and that, that would mean bombing against the regime, he cut a deal instead with, with Russia to, to try and get rid of the chemical weapons. And the U.S. restricted the flow of pivotal weapons to the Free Syrian Army, especially the anti-aircraft weapons called MANPADS, which was the key strength that the Assad regime had. It had the air power in the form of helicopter gunships and and, and airplanes. And so the the FSA needed anti-aircraft weaponry and the US restricted the flow of that key munitions. Finally, it focused almost entirely on bombing ISIS. For years it did nothing while Assad, Russia, and Iran laid waste to the country and its people not grasping these facts, journalists like Fisk, Coburn, Hirsch and others recycle regime propaganda that the U.S. is involved in a regime change operation and goes to the depths of conspiracy theorizing to try and deny the fact of what Assad has done with chemical weapons on his people. And and think that this is somehow atypical of the Assad regime. They've shown absolute bloodthirsty willingness to massacre the population. So it's unsurprising that they would use chemical weapons as a weapon of terror to drive people uh, 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 from, uh, from supporting the, the resistance. The combination of campism and the profound misreading of the structure of world imperialism has led many anti-formations to restrict their opposition only to the US intervention. Of course we have to oppose American imperialism and the ISO, if anybody reads Socialist Worker, there should be no doubt about our opposition to American imperialism, opposition to our own state. But ANSWER, UNAC, stop the war, and other formations have restricted opposition only to U.S. imperialism, and they do little against the so-called war on terror that the U.S. has been conduct- con- conducting against ISIS, and they have refused to protest the main imperial and regional intervention which has been that of Russia and and Iran um, which have spent billions of dollars arming, propping up uh, the regime and laying waste uh, to, to the country. In fact uh, it's estimated that about 90% of the bombs that Russia has dropped on the country have not been against ISIS or other uh, uh, fundamentalist forces, but have been against the genuine revolutionaries who've been trying to fight for the liberation of their country. And Iran and Hezbollah have organized she- death. You know, Shia death squads, Shia militias that have engaged in the worst kinds of sectarian attacks on the Sunni uh, population. But none of the anti-war formations I mentioned have referred to these or even protested them and most have denied the fact of these realities. In fact, some in these anti-war formations actually have backed Russian imperialism itself and I have the unfortunate honor of being on the United for Peace and Justice listserv which has descended, I don't know if anybody else is on it, but it's descended in the worst kind of campism so Kevin Zeiss wrote this on an anti-war listserv this is shocking Of course Syria had the right to ask Russia to aid them. Syria was under attack by the United States who wanted to put in place a government to benefit the United States not the Syrian people. The U.S. has been consistently trying to dominate Syria since the 1940s. The U.S. was funding the so-called rebels to attack Syria. The CIA was aiding them. The U.S. was arming them. Syria needed help to protect them from the violent U.S. regime change operations through their proxies on the ground. Thank goodness Russia came to their aid and prevented the US from taking control of Syria. This is pro-war lunacy. This is not anti-imperialism. This is outright support of an imperialist power on a so-called anti-war listserv. It's shocking. But this is the kind of discussion that has been going on. It's gotten so bad, the campism, that they're shutting down the United for Peace and Justice listserv because it's become a total battle between people who support people's fight for liberation and those who support a brutal dictatorship and um, um, imperial intervention some leftists have provided cover for this uh, 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 kind of opposition only to U.S. imperialism by invoking Karl Liebknecht's famous slogan during World War I, the main enemy is at home. And that's true in the United States. The main enemy is at home. It's our state which maintains the exploitation and oppression of us here in the United States and is one of the main agents of oppression in, in the world system. So the main enemy at home is a fantastic slogan, but we should be clear that Liebknecht said the main enemy, not the only enemy, he said the main enemy is at home. And if you read the speech where this comes from, he was very clear that he was supporting revolution in his own country and revolution in all the other imperial countries during World War 2 in World War 1 in support of international socialist revolution so the main enemy at home is not a slogan to restrict your opposition only to your own imperialist state but is part of an international movement for revolution in all the imperialist state in in imperialist uh, states. The goal in other words for the classical Marxists, for socialism from below was to combine opposition to all imperialism with solidarity with struggles for national liberation and international working class revolution. And even in national liberation struggles, the classical Marxists, Lenin in particular, argued that revolution should not be given, a national liberation struggles should not be given a communist coloration, uh, but as Marx always said, that we would have to bring to the fore the class question, that even in a national liberation struggle, there were different classes that were in, involved in it. In other words, in the, 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 they always saw uh, the struggle as part of a movement for international solidarity, with the eventual aim not only of national liberation, liberation, but of international working class revolution. So, Liebknecht, Lenin, Trotsky, um, Eugene Debs, all would be rolling over in their graves if they knew that their slogan of the main enemy at home was being used to cover support of other imperialist powers and counter-revolutionary governments like Assad. The final, and I think perhaps most disturbing, uh, explanation for this betrayal of the Syrian Revolution on the left and among liberals is a a kind of Islamophobia and Islamophobic arguments which I find the most upsetting um, about these arguments. this, This argument goes this way, they present Assad as the lesser evil. If you read Rania Kalik's writings, this is a lot of what Rania Kalik argues. They present Assad as the lesser evil to what they portray as an entirely Islamic fundamentalist opposition. That's that's what they characterize the the revolution as. They equate the, the Syrian revolution with Islamic fundamentalism. Now of course, most of the people who went out in the revolutionary uprisings were Muslims, but that doesn't mean you're an Islamic fundamentalist. And to imply that is to slip into I- Islamophobia. I don't, I, I don't have time to read the quotes from Rania Khalik, but they're all over the place—tweets, articles, you can find it, Facebook posts, um, etc. Um, and this argument is completely wrong. First, the revolution was not Islamic fundamentalist; it was initially non-sectarian and multi-ethnic. Um, and to to it's 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 not, just not, Possible to deny it if you look at the facts. Second, the regime has never been secular. As I said, it had a sectarian base in the Alawite population. It used sectarianism to divide and conquer uh, the uprising. He, Assad released Islamic fundamentalist jihadists from his jails to form a fifth column within the revolution. He also, during the Iraq War, let Syria be used as a base of operation for Islamic fundamentalist forces that would ha- eventually help form ISIS. So he's not a secular this is not a secular state alternative to Islamic uh, fundamentalism. Third The regime has actually collaborated with Shia sectarian forces from Iran, Hezbollah uh, and Hezbollah that have engaged in the worst kind of ethnic cleansing uh, of the the Sunni population. And worse, now the regime has just passed a law denying the right of return to millions of people to their homes. Most of those people being Sunnis that are now in refugee camps in, in the region of the Middle East. Finally, it's completely absurd to say that Assad is the lesser evil when he is the state that is. He he runs a state that has burned the country to the ground, so how can you call that? He's the greater evil, obviously, in in Syria. So I think we have to reject all these different arguments that has led the left, anti-war, and liberal forces um, to take various versions of either support of Assad, um, apologism for the regime, or agnosticism on the Syrian revolution and it's important because it's much bigger than just Syria although that's an immense question for the international left. and why, why do I say that? Because we're going to see more revolts in the world system now, both inside the American camp and outside the American camp. So the question of our methodology towards the Syrian revolution is going to be important for how we approach all those other revolts. So for example, right now in Nicaragua, there's a mass popular uprising against the Ortega regime, and frankly, we're seeing all the same arguments trotted out to justify support of the regime and its repression of the revolt that you saw used about the Syrian revolution. All the same arguments are coming back. That this popular revolt is a regime change operation, it's a color revolution, the CIA is organizing it. To and then they apologize for Ortega's murder of all these students and workers that have been involved in an uprising. So we're going to see more of these tests. So getting Syria right is how you get the whole question of of our period correctly. Syria is thus not an exceptional question, it's a key question for shaping a new socialist left, a new international uh, socialist movement. We have to revive the Marxist tradition of genuine anti-imperialism. We must first and foremost, oppose our own predatory um, state which is an utterly counter-revolutionary state in the world system. Um, And at the same time, we have to oppose all of US imperialism's rivals, China uh, and Russia and many others. We refuse to fall into the trap of campism and betray international solidarity. We refuse to side with lesser imperialists um, uh, and oppressive states and rulers of any kind. We will not make that choice. Instead, we have to build solidarity with genuine national liberation struggles like that in Puerto Rico, Palestine, Tibet, the Kurds, no matter what camp they're in, and we have to build solidarity with genuine popular uprisings for democracy, equality, and a new kind of of society that puts people before uh, the the profits of this system. That is the only way we can organize a new international socialist movement in our world today. That's why the ISO stood with the Syrian revolution from the beginning. Our solidarity is always with the exploited and oppressed in our collective struggle for international socialist revolution.